Chapter Fourteen of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Fourteen. <clears throat> the circumstances are these: On the day after I said goodbye to him, my father went for his usual morning walk and was absent for two hours he returned looking very pale and disturbed and with some difficulty was persuaded you know how he dislikes speaking of himself to tell what had happened it seems that somewhere on the lonely road he came across two men honest-looking country folk engaged in a violent quarrel the language made it clear that one accused the other of some sort of slander a very trivial affair just as my father came up to them they began fighting he interfered tried to separate them as he would have done i'm sure had they been armed with pistols for the sight of fighting was intolerable to him it put him beside himself with a sort of passionate disgust they were great strong fellows and one of them whether intentionally or not dealt him a fierce blow on the chest knocking him down that put an end to the fight my father had to sit by the roadside for a time before he could go home the next day he did not look well but spent his time as usual and on the morning after he seemed to be all right again the next day again he went for his walk and did not return when his absence became alarming messengers were sent to look for him and by one of these he was found lying on the moorside dead the post-mortem showed that the blow he had received affected the heart, which was already diseased. He didn't know that. Of course, the man who struck him cannot be discovered, and I don't know that it matters. My father would no doubt have been glad to foresee such a death as this. It was sudden, for that he always hoped, and it came of a protest against the thing he most hated, brutal violence. So Piers Otway wrote in a letter to John Jacks. He did not add that his father had died intestate, but of that he was aware before any inquiries had been set on foot. In one of their last talks, Jerome had expressly told his son that he would shortly make a will, not having hitherto been able to decide how his possessions should be distributed. This intestacy meant, if Daniel Otway had spoken truth, that Piers would have no fruit whatever of his father's promises, that his recent hopes and schemes would straightway fall to the ground. And so it was. A telegram from Piers brought down into Yorkshire the solicitor who had for many years been Jerome Otway's friend and adviser. He answered the young man's inquiries with full and decisive information. Mrs Otway already knew the fact whence her habitual coldness to Piers, and the silent acerbity with which she behaved to him at this juncture. "'Mrs. Otway,' said Piers to her on the day of the inquest, "'I shall stay for my father's funeral, and to avoid gossip I still ask your hospitality. I do it with reluctance, but you will very soon see the last of me.' "'You are, of course, welcome to stay in the house,' replied the lady." there is no need to say that we shall in future be strangers and i only hope that the example of this shockingly sudden death in the midst of his blood boiling piers left the room before the sentence was finished 
had he obeyed his conscience he would have followed the coffin in the clothes he was wearing for many a time he had heard his father speak with dislike of the black trappings which made a burial hideous but enforced regard for public opinion that which makes cowards of good men and hampers the world's progress sent him to the outfitters where he was duly disguised with the secret tears he shed there mingled a bitterness at being unable to show respect to his father's memory in such small matters that jerome otway should be buried as a son of the church to which he had never belonged was a ground of indignation but neither in this could any effective protest be made mute in his sorrow piers marvelled with a young man's freshness of feeling at the forms and insincerities which rule the world he had a miserable sense of his helplessness amid forces which he despised on the day of the inquest arrived daniel otway piers having telegraphed to the club where he had seen his brother three years ago before leaving london daniel had provided himself with solemn black of the latest cut hawes people remarked him with curiosity saying what a gentleman he looked but whispering at the same time rumours and doubts for the little town had long gossiped about jerome a man not much to its mind a day later came alexander with him there had been no means of communicating and a newspaper paragraph informed him of his father's death appearing in rough tweeds with a felt hat he inspired more curiosity than respect both brothers greeted piers cordially both were curt and formal with the widow but for appearances sake accepted a cramped lodging in the cottage piers kept very much to himself until the funeral was over he was then invited by daniel to join a conference in what had been his father's room here the man of law jerome's name for him expounded the posture of things with all professional and some personal tact and delicacy will there was certainly none daniel in the course of things would apply for letters of administration the estate it might be said consisted of certain shares in a prosperous newspaper an investment which could be easily realised and of a small capital in consoles to the best of the speaker's judgment the shares were worth about six thousand pounds the consoles amounted to nearly fifteen hundred this capital sum the widow and the sons would divide in legal proportion followed technicalities with conversation mrs otway kept dignified silence piers in the background sat with eyes sunk i think remarked the solicitor gravely and firmly that assembled as we are in privacy i am only doing my duty in making known that the deceased had in view as i know from hints in his correspondence to assist his younger son substantially as soon as that son appeared likely to benefit by such pecuniary aid i think i am justified in saying that that time had arrived that death interposed at an unfortunate moment as regards such plans i wished only to put the point before you as one within my own knowledge is there any question you would like to ask me at present mrs otway the widow shook her head and her funeral trappings thereupon sounded piers otway's voice i should like to say that as i have no legal claim whatever upon my father's estate i do not wish to put forward a claim of any other kind 
let that be understood at once there was silence they heard the waters of the beck rushing over its stony channel for how many thousand years had the beck so murmured for how many thousand would it murmur still as the eldest son then observed daniel with his oxford accent and a sub-note of feeling i desire to say that my brother he generously emphasised the word has expressed himself very well in the spirit of a gentleman perhaps i had better say no more at this moment we shall have other opportunities of um, considering this point oh decidedly remarked alexander who sat with legs crossed we'll talk it over and he nodded with a good-natured smile in piers direction later in the day a family council having been held at which piers was not present daniel led the young man apart you insist on leaving halls to-night well perhaps it is best but my dear boy i can't let you go without saying how deeply i sympathise with your position you bear it like a man piers indeed you do i think i have mentioned to you before how strong i am on the side of morals if you please piers interrupted with brow dark oh no 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 exclaimed the other i was far from casting any reflection de mortuis you know much more so when one speaks of a father i think by the by alec ought to write something about him for publication don't you i was going to say piers oh, that if i remember rightly i am in your debt for a small sum which you very generously lent me oh that book it grows and grows i can't get it into final form the fact is continental art critics uh, oh, but i was going to say i must really insist on being allowed to pay my debt indeed i must as soon as this business is settled he paused watching piers face his own had not waxed more spiritual of late years nor had his demeanour become more likely to inspire confidence but he was handsome in a way and very fluent very suave be it so replied piers frankly i shall be glad of the money i confess mm, to be sure <laughs> you shall have it with the least possible delay and piers it has struck us my dear fellow you might like to choose a volume or two of the good old man's library as a memento we beg you will do so we beg you will do it at once and before you leave thank you i should like the dante he used to carry in his pocket a most natural wish piers take it by all means nothing else you think yes you once told me you had seen a portrait of my mother do you think it still exists i will inquire about it answered daniel gravely it was a framed photograph and at one time many years ago used to stand on his writing-table i'll inquire my dear boy next alexander sought a private colloquy with his disinherited brother look here piers he began bluffly it's a cursed shame i'm hanged if it isn't if we weren't so solemn my boy i should quote bumble about the law of course it's the grossest absurdity and as far as i'm concerned by jove piers he cried with a sudden change of subject if you knew the hard times biddy and i have been going through 
Ah, but she's a brick, is Biddy. She's sent you her love, old boy, and that's worth something, I can tell you. Oh, but I was going to say, you mustn't suppose I've forgotten about the debt. You'll be repaid as soon as ever we realise this property. You shall, Piers. And what's more, you shall be repaid with interest. Yes, three per cent. It would be cursed meanness if I didn't. The fifty pounds I shall be glad of, said Piers. I want no interest. I'm not a money-lender. "'We won't quarrel about that,' rejoined Alexander, with a merry look. Oh, "'But come now. Why don't you let a fellow hear from you now and then? What are you doing? Uh, going back among the Muscovites?' "'Straight back to Odessa, yes.' Oh, "'I may look you up there some day, if Biddy can spare me for a few weeks. A glimpse of the bear. It might be useful to me. Terrible savages, I suppose.' Piers laughed impatiently and gave no other answer. "'Well, uh, the only thing I really wanted to say, Piers, you must let me say it. I, for one, shall take a strong stand about your moral rights in this business here. Of course, your claim is every bit as good as ours. Only a dunder-headed jackass would see it any other way. Daniel quite agrees with me. The difficulty will be that woman. A terrible woman.' She regards you as sealed for perdition by the mere fact of your birth. But you will hear from us, old boy. Be sure of that. Give me your Muscovite address. Piers carelessly gave it. He was paying hardly any attention to his brother's talk, and would have felt it a waste of energy to reassert what he had said in the formal conclave. Weariness had come upon him after these days of grief and indignant tumult, he wanted to be alone. The portrait for which he had asked was very quickly found. It lay in a drawer, locked away among other mementos of the past. With a shock of disappointment, Piers saw that the old photograph had faded almost to invisibility. He just discerned the outlines of a pleasant face, the dim suggestion of womanly charm, all he would ever see of the mother who bore him. <clears throat> well, it seems to me, said Daniel, after sympathising with his chagrin, that there must be a, a lot of papers, literary work, letters and that kind of thing, uh, which will have more interest for you than for anyone else. When we get things looked through, shall I send you whatever I think you would care for? With gratitude, Piers accepted what he could not have brought himself to ask for. On the southward journey, he kept taking from his pocket two letters which had reached him at Hawes. One was from John Jacks, full of the kindliest condolence, a manly letter which it did him good to read. The other came from Mrs. Hannaford, womanly, sincere. It contained a passage to which Piers returned again and again. My niece is really grieved to hear of your sudden loss, happening at a moment when all seemed to be going well with you. She begs me to assure you of her very true sympathy, and sends every good wish. Little enough, this, but the recipient tried to make much of it. He had faintly hoped that Irene might send him a line in her own hand. That was denied. Perhaps he was foolish even to have dreamt of it. He could not address his verses to her now. He must hurry away from England and try to forget her. Of course, she would hear one way or another about the circumstances of his birth. It would come out that he had no share in the property left by his father, 
and the reason be made known he hoped that she might also learn that death had prevented his father's plan for benefiting him he hoped it for in that case she might feel compassion yet in the same moment he felt that this was a delusive solace pity for a man because he had lost money does not incline to warmer emotion the hope was sheer feebleness of spirit he spurned it he desired no one's compassion how would irene regard the fact of his illegitimacy not assuredly from mrs otway's point of view she was a century ahead of that possibly she was capable of dismissing it as indifferent but he could not be certain of her freedom from social prejudice he remembered the singular shock with which he himself had first learnt what he was a state of mind quite irrational but only to be dismissed with an effort of the trained intelligence irene would undergo the same experience and it might affect her thought of him for ever not for one instant did he visit these troubles upon the dead man his loyalty to his father was absolute no thought or half-thought looked towards accusation he arrived at his hotel in london late at night drank a glass of spirits and went to bed the sleep he hoped for came immediately but lasted only a couple of hours suddenly he was wide awake and a horror of great darkness enveloped him what he now suffered he had known before but with less intensity he stared forward into the coming years and saw nothing that his soul desired a life of solitude of bitter frustration were it irene were it another the woman for whom he longed would never become his he had not the power of inspiring love the mere flesh would constrain him to marriage a sordid union a desecration of his ideal his worship and in the latter days he would look back upon a futile life what is life without love and to him love meant communion with the noblest nature had kindled in him this fiery ambition only for his woe all the passion of the great hungry world seemed concentrated in his sole being images of maddening beauty glowed upon him out of the darkness glowed and gleamed by he knew not what creative mandate faces forms such as may visit the delirium of a supreme artist of him they knew not they were worlds away though his own brain bodied them forth he smothered cries of agony he flung himself upon his face and lay as one dead for the men capable of passionate love and they are few to miss love is to miss everything life has but the mockery of consolation for that one gift denied the heart may be dulled by time it is not comforted illusion if it be it is that which crowns all other illusions whereof life is made the man must prove it or he is born in vain at sunrise piers dressed himself and made ready for his journey he was worn with fever had no more strength to hope or to desire his body was a mechanism which must move and move End of chapter fourteen